Section 11 of Early Rome by Wilhelm Ina. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6. Religious Institutions in the Time of the Kings. Giving up all details of the traditional history of the kings, we have tried to discover through the haze of fiction a few prominent landmarks by which we have traced the probable course of events from the time when the first settlers arrived on the seven hills of Rome to the establishment of a regular republican government under annually elected magistrates. We will now endeavor to draw a picture of the public life of the Roman people in that primeval period, so that we may have a starting point from which to measure the advance made in the succeeding ages and a background to relieve the life and action of historical times. How, it may be asked, shall we obtain the materials for this picture as the history of the time to which the picture belongs is lost shall we not fall into an error as great as that for which we blame the analysts shall we not be obliged to draw upon our fancy alone and will not our picture be as worthless as the legends which we have condemned fortunately it is not so the advance of historical science since the days of the roman analysts has enabled us to reproduce pictures of the society of even prehistoric ages with almost as much objective truth as the geologist can reproduce the fauna and flora of ages preceding the creation of man and the present conformation of the earth's surface the heroic period of greek national life the age of the trojan war and of all that follows down to the doric migration is lost to history as much as the period of the roman kings yet it is possible to form a full and accurate conception of life in this period of the state of society of government and religion nay of domestic arrangements and even of articles of dress and furniture this we are enabled to do because the epic poetry of greece though it cannot be trusted as evidence to prove historical events invests its ideal personages with real properties attributes and qualities abstracted from what actually came under the poet's observation if the author of the odyssey tells of nausicaa and her troop of maidservants washing the family linen by the river outside the town we shall infer not that there ever lived a real princess called nausicaa but that in the heroic times the daughters of kings were in the habit of superintending the family washing. This is well understood nowadays, but the case is somewhat different when we approach the prehistoric period of Rome. Here we have no epic poems originating in the age we wish to study, and therefore representing the general state of society correctly. The Romans, as we have had occasion to remark, had no national epic poetry, memory unaided by poetry may preserve striking events of national importance but will it linger on habits and customs which have passed away we can hardly think this possible and we must therefore draw our information concerning the institutions of the regal period from other sources fortunately these are not altogether wanting we have already referred to the conservative spirit of the romans which induced them to preserve the forms and outward observances of old institutions long after those institutions were practically abolished and the forms had become empty and unmeaning wherever therefore we can discover such forms we are justified in concluding that they had once possessed life and vigour 
and from the totality of such isolated fragments we can reconstruct the outlines of the old social and political life. We start with a fact which we have had occasion to refer to in a previous chapter, namely that religious ideas and institutions are the oldest inheritance of a nation and that they precede those which are secular and political. The earliest periods in the history of every nation may be called sacerdotal or religious. All human action was then inspired, directed, and judged from a religious point of view. The laws were the laws of God. The people was a community of worshippers. The temple of the national deity was the center of the state. The priests, as the interpreters of the divine will, ruled and regulated society. The national wealth and the national strength were devoted to uphold this system. The truth of this statement is borne out by what we know of the Oriental nations. The Egyptians, the Jews, and Hindus based their political institutions upon a religious foundation. The sacred books which contained the religious laws were at the same time the code which regulated social and political life. Obligations towards the national religion, its creed and worship, were not distinguished from moral obligations, nor moral obligations from those of civil law. The whole life of those nations was bound up in subjection to one idea, the idea of religion. As long as the nations of antiquity preserved independent national existence, every religion was strictly a national religion, every god a national god, whose authority extended no further than the boundaries of the state. The god of one state could not claim worship from the citizens of another. Nay, he repudiated such worship as sacrilegious and illegitimate. And in a citizen it would have been treason of the worst kind if he had paid homage to any other than the national gods. Purity of religion was a civic virtue. Devotion to the altars of the gods was essential to patriotism. Exclusion from the national worship was equivalent to political banishment. A man who had lost his altar had lost his home. This unity or oneness of state and religion impresses on all the ancient communities a more or less hierarchical character, although the nations of the West, both Greeks and Italians, differed widely from those of the East, inasmuch as they never made themselves the slaves of a priestly caste and early emancipated the state from the bondage of laws which claimed to be divine and therefore unchangeable. Yet the earliest period of the Roman people may emphatically be called religious or rather sacerdotal. The law was in the custody of the pontiffs. The punishment of offenses consisted in an offering or payment made to the gods in the form of a fine or ransom, poena, or it was a solemn act of supplication addressed to the gods to appease their anger by the punishment supplicium of the offender. Civil claims were prosecuted by a sacramentum by depositing a sum in the hands of priests, which the losing party forfeited to the gods. Every political association was placed under the control of a protecting deity, for every action, whether private or public, the consent of the deity had first to be obtained. The father of every family was a priest. Every house, gens, or association of families had its sanctuary. So had the curia, or association of houses, every quarter of a town, every tribe, and finally the state itself. 
the temple of Vesta was the symbolic hearth of the whole nation in the old Sabino Latin town. The temple of Jupiter, erected by the Tarquins on the capital, was the centre of the enlarged state. The temple of Diana on the Aventine united the Romans and their allies, the Latins, as fellow worshippers and fellow citizens, as the old temple of Jupiter Ladiaris on the Alban Mount had anciently united all the members of the Latin confederacy. The pervading influence of religion in the first formation of society and political institutions is thus sufficiently clear, and it follows that to understand the true character and working of these institutions we must try to understand the nature of that religion. The religion of the Romans, though belonging to that class of polytheism that prevailed, as far as we can see, among all the branches of the Aryan race, differed widely, not only from that of the Asiatic nations, but also from that of the Greeks, their nearest neighbors. It agreed in so far as it was a worship of the powers of nature, both material and spiritual. The heavens, the sun and the moon, light, water, the earth, the powers presiding over generation and destruction, health and sickness, the ruling passions of the human heart, the protectors of law and society, all were singled out from the all-pervading Godhead, the life and spirit of the world, to receive separate and special worship from man. While other nations speculated with more or less perseverance on the nature and attributes of the divine beings, and laid down elaborate systems of the birth and genealogy of the gods, investing them with human forms and passions, the Romans never indulged in such speculations, but were satisfied to look upon their gods as spiritual beings, all-powerful to hurt or to benefit man. They never worked out a philosophical system of religion. In fact, they had no theology and no sacred books to base it on. Before they became directly or indirectly acquainted with the Greeks, they had at best only a rudimentary mythology, and consequently there are no myths of genuine Roman growth. It is related that in the beginning of the regal period there were no images of gods, but only symbols, such as a lance or a stone. The representations of the gods in human forms were introduced by the Etruscans, who had borrowed them from the Greeks of the Italian peninsula. Thus began a regular process of naturalization of the Greek deities, the whole system of Greek theology, their myths and their sacred art, were bodily transplanted to fill the void which the unimaginative and unspeculative character of the Romans, and in fact of all the Italians, had left in their religion. Zeus was identified with Jupiter, Hera with Juno, Athena with Minerva, Ares with Mars, although the original conceptions of their nature might have been very different. Some Greek and even some Asiatic deities were adopted into the family of the Roman national gods. In short, as far as the speculative and imaginative part of religion was concerned, that is, the theological system or the articles of faith, if we might use this expression, the religion of Rome became identified with that of Greece. But the case was different with respect to that part of religion which springs not from reflection and fancy, but from feeling. The relation between God and man, the sentiments with which the gods were approached, the duties which they exacted, the worship prescribed for their service, in short, the law, or the practical as distinguished from the theoretical part, were peculiarly Roman, and remain so, even when the whole host of the Greek Olympus had migrated to Rome.
what the romans understood by religion was confined to this second part as by far the more important through it alone religion could exercise an influence on real life private as well as public and it is this which must therefore engage our special attention if the religion of the greeks was more fully and richly developed than that of the romans on the side of speculation the romans on the other hand cultivated the law with more zeal and earnestness in fact they almost resemble some oriental nations aryan and semitic in the scrupulous minuteness into which they bent the most trifling transactions of life under the yoke of religious duties it is true they were free from the minute regulations concerning eating which in the east were an important and characteristic part of religious law they did not know the difference between clean and unclean animals nor were the eastern laws of fasting and manifold washings imposed upon them all asceticism was unknown to them but nevertheless the observances prescribed by their religion were so numerous and imperative that no transaction of any importance was free from them prayers offerings vows religious ceremonies minutely regulated for every emergency were of vital importance the least oversight the least neglect might draw down the anger of the gods even ignorance was no excuse for the divine interpreters of the will of the gods were at hand to expound the law and to prescribe for every occasion the proper rite of worship on the other hand in return for faithful service the devout roman had a right to expect from his gods help protection and all the blessings of life the gods had made a covenant with him and they were bound to perform their part of the mutual obligation if he was scrupulous in performing his own in fact the word religion is of the same root as obligation and whereas the latter is applied to denote a covenant entered into between one citizen and another according to the rules of civil law the word religion denotes that bondage or service which man owes to the gods on the understanding that he is entitled to an equivalent but inasmuch as man is the weaker party in wisdom as well as in power he must be most attentive to perform minutely his part of the agreement religion therefore turns out to be the fear lest the gods should punish man for neglect it is a constant anxiety about duties they have to perform a scrupulousness which makes them watch their own actions and all external events lest the anger of the gods should be roused and it is often not to be distinguished from superstition such a religion would have struck paralyzing terror into the hearts of men and would have rendered them ignoble crouching slaves if a protection had not been found in the law itself to shield mortal man from the superior power of the gods the religion of rome was a fully and carefully elaborated legal system it laid down minutely the duties of man and the fines to be paid on every transgression it regulated the intercourse between gods and men and showed how the goodwill and cooperation of the gods could be obtained by a certain and infallible process it was like the civil law full of fictions and casuistry it imposed no obligations but those which could be accurately circumscribed by the number and quality of sacrifices and services it suggested no such thing as love or trust or hope the notion of virtue in our sense of the word was unknown cicero defines piety as justice toward the gods and he adds the significant words 
what piety is due to those from whom we have received no benefit. It is clear that the human conscience played a very subordinate part in such a religion. Morality had nothing to do with it. Every iniquitous action was allowed by the state religion, provided a man could show that he was formally in the right. Even the gods might be cheated lawfully if a man was quick and sharp enough to avail himself of some formality in the divine law, or could interpret a doubtful injunction in his favor. An omen sent by the gods might be accepted or rejected, or interpreted in the most convenient and profitable way. A false and lying announcement by an augur had the efficacy of a true one, provided it was duly made in the prescribed form. Unlucky signs were not allowed to prevent any undertaking upon which a Roman magistrate was bent. It was only necessary to repeat the process of divination until the desirable favorable signs appeared. If the entrails of the first animal were found faulty, a second was slaughtered and a third and so forth, until heart and liver were found to be such as foretold success. If no favorable birds would appear on the first inspection of the sky, the augur had only to continue his observations long enough until he saw what he wished to see. The whole of this complicated system of divine law was in the keeping of the pontiffs, but neither the pontiffs nor the other priests constituted an independent power in the state. They could declare what the law was, but they could not enforce it on their own authority. They were entirely subordinate to the civil magistrates, and their principal duty was to serve the state. A conflict between the state and the priesthood was impossible. Even if the national religion had not been so intimately bound up with and dependent upon the existence of the state, the priests could not have constituted a body distinct from the rest of the community and bound together by interests of their own. They possessed none of the conditions of such independence. They did not, like the priests of India and Egypt, form a separate caste, but they were elected for life from among the body of citizens, the high pontiff being himself generally a man of mark among the political leaders. Though not magistrates in the full sense of the word, they discharged public functions as necessary for the welfare of the state as any which were committed to the civil servants. Among these services, none were more important than that of the augurs who presided over the public auspices. The characteristic procedure by which the Roman people kept up their official intercourse with the gods, as a clear insight into the nature of the auspices, is necessary for understanding the relative position of religion in the state. We must delay a while to examine them. Every nation of antiquity had its peculiar method for ascertaining the will of the gods. The Greeks had their oracles and dreams, the Chaldeans consulted the stars, the nations of Italy looked upon striking and unusual natural phenomena as special revelations, thunder and lightning, earthquakes, eclipses, meteoric appearances of unexplained character or terrifying effect, abnormal or monstrous formations in men or animals, all this came under the head of prodigies, awakened the religion, that is, the superstitious fear of the people, and called for explanation on the part of the initiated priesthood, or in case of necessity, for expiatory sacrifices and services. But apart from these casual manifestations of the divine will, there were methods by which men might ascertain the will of the gods whenever occasion required it. This was regularly done before any act or enterprise of importance, whether in private life or in the matters of state. 
No election, no trial, no legislative vote could take place, no war could be undertaken, no battle commenced, before the assent of the gods had been given. The gods allowed their worshippers to approach and to consult them at all times, and never refused a reply if the proper forms were employed. They sent their auspices to the magistrates of the Roman people through the interposition of the augurs, who understood the nature and the meaning of the prophetic signs. The auspices formed in some respect the very heart and centre of the practical religion of the Romans. They were the means by which every action of life was directed conformably with the divine will. Every private citizen could employ the augurs and consult the gods for his own guidance, but the magistrates alone could act on the part of the whole people and require the augurs to take public auspices. The augur on such occasions took his station in a templum, that is, a consecrated plot of ground within certain defined limits. He divided the sky above him with his augural staff, the litus, into four quarters, and watched for the appearance of the sacred birds sent by Jupiter. As they appeared in one or other of the divisions he had made, so they were pronounced favorable or unfavorable. No other answer was vouchsafed by the gods but this simple yea or nay to the question whether the enterprise in hand was acceptable to them or not. No direction of any kind, no indication of what should be done to secure the desired end was ever given. All this was left to the free choice of men. If they failed to adopt the right means, it was their fault. The gods did not guarantee success, but simply declared their approbation or disapprobation of the undertaking concerning which they were consulted. This system of taking the auspices prevailed in Rome as long as the ancient religion lasted and was only overthrown by the victory of Christianity. But it did not always continue to be animated by that spirit of faith which had given it birth. In the Republican period, it became gradually a mere formality. The augurs announced as the will of the gods whatever they were expected to announce. The gods were no longer allowed to put in their veto. The mode of taking the auspices was even adapted to the altered circumstances, and domestic fowls kept in cages were made to indicate, by their eagerness or slowness in eating, whether the gods approved or condemned an enterprise. But this indifference of later times must not mislead us with regard to the influence exercised at an early period by the auspices under the management of the priests. There can be no doubt that an unfavorable sign was in the old time a sufficient motive for abandoning any measure resolved upon by the civil power. Even the augurs themselves may be supposed to have been honest, and to have been frightened by unpropitious or encouraged by favorable birds. They would be prevented by their own religion from announcing signs which they had not really seen. Such a priesthood, firm in its own faith, exercised, no doubt, an influence in the state, which gave to the whole scheme of government a hierarchical character. This was the character of the earliest period. Every institution of a religious nature was then in full vigor, the secular and military institutions were still in their infancy, and grew up under the shadow of the hierarchy. Law and civil policy received their impulse and first impression from religion, and only in proportion as the religious force of the national mind was spent and unable to send forth new offshoots, or even to keep life in the old roots, did the development of civil institutions take its own independent course. 
it is certain that after the establishment of the republic no new religious rites grew up spontaneously whilst many of the old ones were preserved merely in outward form we are therefore entitled to say that the early regal period was governed chiefly by sacerdotal influence and that in it all those institutions were in full working efficiency with which we become acquainted only in the period of their decay when they are more and more superseded by the political institutions of an age inclined to be sceptical and indifferent in religious matters. End of section 11